Lord, we praise you and thank you that through your sovereignty and through your care of us, it is well with our soul. No matter what this life may bring, Lord, we trust in your sovereign hand. We trust in your sovereign love. And we thank you this morning as we come together, as we've had an opportunity to worship through song. We thank you for the blessing that you provided. We pray that your name was glorified as we sang. And Lord, I pray that as we continue to look into your word, I pray that as we see what you would want us to know from uh, Jericho, from Joshua, Lord, I pray that you would uh, just guide us, direct us, give us wisdom as we look to your word, and that you would speak this morning. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Joshua fought the battle of Jericho. Classic song, maybe you grew up even singing in Sunday school. Um, and uh, the men's choir even flirted for a little while with the idea of singing it, um, even this week. Uh, it's, a, it's a fun song, it's an interesting song. Uh, as we think about and we've learned about from the time we were little children that Jericho, the walled city, that the walls came tumbling down. Uh, Joshua fought the battle of Jericho and the walls came tumbling down. And we, we've been taught this, we've learned this, we've, we've kind of looked at this as one of those epic battles that is in scripture that everyone has heard of and it's a pretty crazy uh, endeavor. That the walls were so high that it was impenetrable and yet Israel had victory over Jericho through the leadership of Joshua. And although all of that is true, this morning we're going to read the biblical account of what happens as Israel marches in and around Jericho and they have victory. And we're going to see that it, although, uh, and I honestly have no problem with the song at all, uh, other than this small thing, if we're not careful, we can focus on Joshua a whole lot more than the real hero of the story. We can focus on Joshua uh, more than really the real commander, the real one that gave victory to Israel. And although Joshua played a part Ultimately, as we see in Joshua chapter 6, that the victory belongs to the Lord. The victory belongs to God and God alone. And not a man who he had called. And yes, Joshua was faithful. And we see that there's going to be a huge victory for the Israelite people as Joshua leads them. But ultimately, we're going to see today that it was all centered around the power and the sovereignty of God himself. And so, as we've said, as we've looked through the book of Joshua, we need to be careful not to look at this book as though, even though the book is named after Joshua, that he is the hero of the story. Uh, He is a man that we can look up to and follow his example for sure. But more than anything else throughout the book of Joshua, we will see that God is a God who is faithful to his promises and a God who is a powerful God that has victory and gives victory. And so that's what we're going to continue to look at. We're going to be in Joshua chapter 6. If you haven't opened there yet, we'll be reading there shortly. If you haven't been with us, uh, we've been traveling through the book of Joshua now for a few months. And we've seen some themes develop as we've gone through the book of Joshua. And we've seen that one theme that we see from the very beginning, the very first chapter, is a theme of courage. Uh, A theme uh, that Joshua has been called to courage in taking the promised land. The promised land that God had promised long ago to Abraham and all of Joshua's descendants, that land that had been promised was now going to be 
Israel's. It was going to be uh, the land that Israel could take that God had given them, the promised land. And yet Joshua is told to have courage as they enter. And we looked at what courage is all about, and this has been the theme we keep running to, that courage is not just about gritting our teeth. It's not just about being strong in and of ourselves. It's not about finding strength uh, through other means other than finding and trusting in God's promises, trusting in God's laws, and trusting in God's presence. That really true courage, facing this life with courage, is all about our relationship with God and following him and leaning on his presence and not our own. And we see that this becomes a theme throughout the book. Um, We also see the mission of courage was for Joshua, but it was also for all of Israel. All the people were called to follow in Joshua's footsteps as he has courage, as he has faith, as he trusts in God's promises, laws, and presence. So all of Israel was to be involved in this, uh, in the taking of the promised land. We've seen that as we look at courageous faith, what does that look like? It means knowing God. It means having an emotional reaction to understanding who God is. And it also ultimately means action. That no matter what we know and how we feel, it needs to, be, it needs to go out and it needs to be in our feet. It needs to be in action. Israel now at this point so far has crosses the, crossed the Jordan River. It was in flood stage. They, but they crossed the river to get to Jericho. And God divides, or stops the water so that the, the land is dry. Israel walks across. And they celebrate and they remember it by obeying by going across the river. And then remembering it by setting up a memorial. And they set up a memorial to remember what God had done for them. And then even before we get to this point where the first battle happens, we see that Israel has made a point of showing and celebrating their covenant with God through circumcision, through the whole camp, through taking Passover together. They are once again pointing to God and remembering the covenant that God had made with them. They are not leaning on their own strength. They are not leaning on anything other than God's covenant that he made with them, on God's promises. Last time we were together a few weeks ago before our mission's emphasis, we saw that God, before this battle, shows up, uh, God shows up, the commander of the armies of the Lord, and he declares his presence, that he's there among the people, but he also declares his purpose, and his purpose is to give glory to himself. That God's ultimate purpose throughout history is to glorify himself and to make himself look good and to be and to show himself to be exactly who he is. Good, righteous, loving, just, all of those things, all of who God is, he wants his glory to be seen. And as we looked at even in the first week of missions emphasis, not just his glory to be seen in Jericho and in Israel, but for his glory to be seen throughout the world. And God's ultimate purpose is exactly that. And his mercy and his grace and his love that he shows us is just a byproduct and a flow from, his, from him wanting to show himself to be the good, merciful, graceful God that he is. And so that is God's purpose. We keep that all in mind. And I go through all that review and I want to really uh, remember that we just looked at the commander of the armies of the Lord showing that he doesn't take sides. When asked if he is on Israel's side or the enemy's side, he says neither uh, and the whole, whole idea there is that God is for God and he is fighting for God's glory and God's reputation. And so going into Jericho, going into the rest of this book, that is going to be a theme that we must not forget. That God is in the mission. He's on, he has the purpose of showing himself to be the glorious God, the glorious creator of all. 
And he'll continue to do that even as we look at our passage today. So uh, we're going to break this down in a few different parts. We're going to be in Joshua chapter 6. I just want to start with Joshua chapter 6 verse 1. This gives us a little bit of a setting uh, where we find ourselves, where Jericho is, and how uh, this battle is about to take place. Joshua 6 verse 1. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. This, this verse kind of says, where, is, or where are the people of Jericho at this point? So Israel is across the Jordan. They're in view of Jericho. Uh, the whole nation is there along with the army. And the armies of Jericho, the people of Jericho, have all gone into the walls. They've all gone into their city this city was probably more than just a more than just a normal city. This would have been a um, a, a fortress. It would have been a, the gateway to the rest of the land. And so they go inside, and and in this city there's a double wall system that is so high that it's impenetrable. People can't get through these walls. So really, what they're doing is they've they put themselves in the city and they are preparing for a siege. Jericho is closed up and ready for a siege, and the time indeed has come for battle. As Jericho is ready, they are readying themselves, they're protecting themselves the best way they know how, and that is they're gathering all in the city. Now, if you remember from the past uh, chapters, we will see that the people of Jericho are at a very interesting place. The people of Jericho are actually in fear of Israel. Uh, they, They have no spirit within them, we've been told in other chapters as we look earlier in the book of Joshua. The people of Jericho have heard what God did for Israel in Egypt. He heard about, they've heard about the Red Sea crossing. They've heard about how God has sustained his people through the wilderness. And they've heard how they crossed the Jordan River on dry land. And they know and they've heard of the victories of the Israelites that they have had in the past. And the people of Jericho are afraid and they've shut themselves in. They're not going out to battle. They are waiting and they are defending themselves the best way they know how. As we said another time before, this is not the picture that we get in sometimes in our stories of uh, the people of Jericho being arrogant and, and uh, condescending to Israel as they march around the wall. In fact, they're hiding and they're scared because they know the power of God. It's interesting that even people who don't believe in him, in the sense they don't have faith, they haven't given their lives to him, still understand his greatness. And they are afraid and they are closed in. And so that's where we find ourselves. So now Joshua and the Israelites are looking at a city uh, that, as I said, it's, a, it's got two uh, impenetrable walls that they have built around this city to be a fortress. And Israel and Joshua would be looking at this city, and now it's time to figure out how are we going to have victory? How are we going to get into the city? How are we going to defeat it? And to a, a, to a man's mind, to a common person, this would seem like an almost impossible task. No doubt there had been many battles probably in Jericho that had not succeeded. And yet now, as the Israelites look at this, they, there's this idea of how are we going to find victory? And so this is what we see happen. We see God again comes onto the scene, shows himself to be the God that he always has been and always will be, that he is sovereign and he has his own plan. And so we're going to look at how the battle progresses. We're going to look at the battle plan. We're going to look at how it's executed. And we're finally going to look at what happens at the end of the battle. But first we're going to start by reading verses 2 through 5 here in chapter 6. And God gives the battle plan. The battle plan is given to Israel. They didn't come up with this on their own. 
They didn't get all, all the strategic minds together and come up with a great strategy for how to breach the wall and how to get in and defeat Jericho. No, what happens is God says and comes to Joshua and gives him the battle plan that he needs. So verse 2 in chapter 6. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and its mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Then you shall do, That you shall do for six days. Seven priests shall bear trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests will blow the trumpets. And when they made a long blast with the ram's horn, you will hear the sound of the trumpet. And all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city wall and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. So God comes and he gives this battle plan to Joshua. Now, at first blush you would think this is a crazy plan. It doesn't sound like any military plan, any military strategy that you would ever hear anywhere else, but God gives it to Joshua. And what are the things that this plan entails? Well, the first thing we see that God reminds them in verse 2, reminds Joshua, I am the Lord, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and its mighty men of valor. The battle plan starts again with faith. Israel, Joshua, is to have faith in God and not in themselves. See, God reminds Joshua, I have given you this city. It is, I have already given it to you. It is already in your hands. I have taken it. This is before the battle has even happened, and this requires a a great amount of faith on the part of Joshua and eventually in the Israelite people to have faith that God, the God who said he would give them this city, indeed was faithful to his promise and would follow through on that promise. And so God says, first of all, just remember, this is not your victory, this is mine, have faith in that. And so that's the first part of the battle plan. And then he goes into specifics. It says, Israel, uh, the, the army of Israel is to march around the city once a day and for six days and then seven times on the seventh day. By the way, the, the number seven is all throughout scripture. You will see how important the number seven is from the very point of creation when God rested on the seventh day. It's a number of completion. It's a number of, it's really God's number. It's complete. It's holy. It's the seventh. That's why there's the Sabbath. That's why there's all sorts of mentions of seven all throughout Scripture. So it won't, doesn't surprise us that there's a seven-day march once a day and then seven times on the seventh day. There's again an understanding of the completeness of God and that God is in this. And so even in the very number, we see that God is making it very known that he is the one who is the one at work. But Israel is to march around the city, and I want to say this, it's putting faith to action. You know, it's one thing just to have faith and say, okay, God, you're going to give us the, you're going to give us the city. All right, we'll just sit down, we'll sip some lemonade, and we'll just wait and watch what happens. No, God says, you need to march. And so they're not only going to have to have faith that God has given them the city, but they're going to need to march around it. The next thing in the battle plan that's also t- told us is the presence of God is to lead Israel. In this passage, we see that seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before what? Before the ark. We've already talked about the ark of the covenant. The ark of the covenant is the symbol of God's presence. It doesn't physically, literally have his presence in it, but it is the symbol. And there is power in the symbol of God's presence. And Joshua says, you're going to blow horns, you're going to, the priests are going to go forward to worship God through, through the instrumentation, and also the ark will be going forth. The ark will be going first. The presence of God will be with Israel. 
No doubt as the army would be marching around, they would look to that ark and remember the presence of God was with them. The next thing we see in the battle plan is that Israel is to shout and blow horns. We already talked about the blowing of the horns. It's, it's, a, it's really a worshipful thing to do to God, to, to declare through the, the shout and blowing of horns that yes, God has given the victory. God doesn't say that they're going to need to attack the wall. He doesn't say they're going to have to implant explosives or anything like that. God says shout and blow horns. And so that's what they're going to end up doing. And it shows again another action that they are putting to their faith. And it speaks of their worship to God. And then finally the last piece of the battle plan in the last part of chapter 5. Or verse 5. Is that Israel is to go into the city and defeat it. To take what God has given them. It says, after the walls fall, they will fall down flat after you shout. And once the walls are flat, then you will be, be able to go in one after another. To have a picture of this, the two walls, there's actually two sets of walls on a hill. And the walls would fall in flat so that you could walk straight up. That's why it talks about walking up into the city. Walk up into the city and take what God has given them. Once again, he is using... Uh, people to accomplish his purpose, but this is all about the power and strength of God himself. So now we're going to read verses 6 through 20, and what we're going to see is that the battle plan is, is executed. The battle plan that God gave now is executed by the Israelites. And so we'll see a couple different things that will happen here, but we'll start in chapter 6, verse 6. So Joshua the son of Nun called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, Go forward, march around the city, and let the armed men pass on before the ark of the Lord. And just as Joshua had commanded the people, the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord went forward, blowing the trumpets with the ark of the covenant of the Lord following them. And the armed men were walking before the priests who were blowing the trumpets, and the rear guard was walking after the ark while the trumpets blew continually. But Joshua commanded the people, You shall not shout or make your voice heard. Neither shall any word go out of your mouth until the day I tell you to shout. Then you shall shout. So he caused the ark of the Lord to circle the city, going about it once. And they came into the camp and spent the night in the camp. Then Joshua rose early the next morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord. And seven priests, bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns, before the ark of the Lord, walked on. And they blew the trumpets continually, and the armed men were walking before them. And the rear guard was walking after the... After the ark of the Lord, while the trumpets blew continually, and the second day they marched around the city once and returned to the camp. So they did for six days. On the seventh day they rose early at the dawn of day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city, and the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction." Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live because she hid the messengers whom we had sent. But you keep yourselves from doing things devoted from keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them you may take any of the devoted things and make a, make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all the silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord, they shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout and the wall fell down flat so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. We see that the battle plan has now been executed. 
And uh, as we look at this whole passage, we see that uh, Israel... So first of all, we see Joshua told the Israelites what to do. See, Joshua was told by God, this is the battle plan, but it's still not only going to take faith on Joshua's part to trust that that battle plan is going to work, but also then he comes and he tells the people what they need to do. He tells the priests what they need to do. He tells the army what they need to do and what God has told them, and they do it. They follow what Joshua says, and we've looked at this uh, throughout this book. They follow Joshua not because Joshua is Joshua. They follow Joshua because they know that he is a man of God. They follow Joshua because they know he is following God. And so really their faith in Joshua is just an outpouring of their faith in God himself. So Joshua told the Israelites what to do in verses 6 and 7 and even on throughout this passage. But then Israel obeyed Joshua in faith. Joshua told them and then Israel obeyed. And they obeyed what he said to do. They marched around one time each day for six days. They marched around seven times on the seventh day. They blew their horns. They shouted. And the walls fell flat. They went in and they took the city. And they had victory. That's what we're told in verse 20. And they captured the city. The city was captured. And so the battle plan was executed just as God had drawn it up. And then uh, we see... Throughout this passage that we just read, something very, very clear. Even at the end where it starts talking about taking the silver and gold and those things that can't be destroyed. Take them and put them in the treasury of the Lord that would be used for the glory of God. And so that is supposed to happen. And we're going to see in the next chapter and uh, that uh, this does not happen. There is some disobedience that happens in the camp of Israel. But before we even get there, God says, don't take anything for yourselves. The only thing that you need to take is what's good for the treasury of God. It all will be devoted to me. And so that is the call. That is what they're told to do as they take the land. And what we see is that the battle was for the Lord. The battle was for the Lord. I think I counted eight times in this passage that we just read that it specifically talks about the Lord, about Yahweh. And it says it is him that is doing the work. Even Joshua reminds the people in this passage and says and, and reminds them that the Lord is going, uh, that the Lord is going to take the city. And the ark of the Lord that is there and it's very prominent and once again shows the presence of God. The, the symbol of the presence of God was circling the city of Jericho once for the six days and then seven times on the seventh day. And the reminder, we can't miss it as we look at chapter 6, it was not the people doing anything other than marching, shouting, and blowing trumpets. That is not a battle plan that will ever end in victory unless God is the one giving the victory. And we see that that's the case here in chapter 6 as we read the, the talk about how the battle goes down and we see that it's very clear that what joshua says they do and that god is the one who is giving victory so then we see in the last part of this chapter that not only was the battle plan given by god and then executed by israel but the battle plan was indeed and a successful battle plan the battle plan is successful despite all human wisdom the battle plan is successful and so we're going to look at a couple different parts of this as we look at what happens as a result of the battle. The battle is over. They have had victory. And then part of it is included in verse 21. And we're just going to read that verse. We're going to talk about this verse for a little while. And then we'll move on and see what else happens as a result of the battle. Verse 21. 
They captured the city. Then, the, then they devoted all in the city to destruction. Both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys, with the edge of the sword. The first thing we're going to see is the battle plan is successful. God gave complete victory over all the city. And we say victory over all the city. I'm not going to sit here and act like this verse is an easy verse to read or to understand. Verse 21, again, they devoted all in the city to destruction. You know, if that's all it said, we might not think about it as much. But then it says both men and women, young and old, and all the animals as well. Everything was to die by the edge of the sword. This is what God told them to do and they follow through on this. This is a hard passage. How would God be okay with a whole city being taken out? How would God be okay with not only just the fighting men, but also women and young, the children, and all the animals who are innocent? Why, why would God do this? Why would God be okay with this? Why would the Israelites do this? And why would it be something that would glorify God? Because it doesn't make sense in our mind. But we see that this is a symbol of God's complete victory. And this is also showing us God's perfect justice. We've talked about this before. That God, so many times in in our conversations, we talk about God being the God of love, mercy, grace. And those are all truths. Those are all things that we can claim and that are true. God is a God of all love. God is a God of all mercy. God is a God of all grace. But oftentimes we forget that God is also a God of all justice. He is a just and righteous and God that does bring wrath upon sin. That is justice. That is God. And if he wasn't just, he wouldn't be good. If he wasn't righteous, he wouldn't be good. If he was not to punish sin, if he was not to display his justice by judging sin, then he, wouldn't, he couldn't be God at all. Simple illustration of this is uh, if you went into a court of law and somebody who was a serial killer was before the judge and the serial killer uh, comes before the judge... And he says, yes, I know I committed all these murders. I know it was really wrong of me. Um, I promise, though, that I won't do it anymore. And you know what? Uh, That was my old life. Now I'm going to go ahead and, and just do something different. So please let me go because even though I've committed all these crimes, all of these sins... Uh, just please, all, all of these murders, just let me go. I don't need to go to jail. I don't need the death penalty. Like, just, just let me go, and I promise I won't do it again. And if we were to hear this on the news, and this happened, and the judge were to say to that serial killer, uh, it's been proven that you're a serial killer, there's no question about it, and you've been found guilty, but you know what? Because um, I love you so much, uh, I'm just going to let you go. I'm going to let you do whatever you want to do, and I... I and hopefully you'll change the way you live. If we got that in the newspaper today, uh, how many of us would be livid? We'd be angry with the judge. We'd be saying that that judge is unfair, that judge is unjust. We'd be saying that judge has no right to be a judge, that he should be removed from his or her position, that, that that judge is a bad judge because they let somebody who is guilty get away and let them continue to do what they were doing. Because no matter what that person says, the odds of them going back into that life is so clear. 
Even worse would be a judge where the serial killer would say, yeah, I've done this, but you know what? I'm probably still going to do it again. But judge, I really expect you to let me go because I know you're a really good guy. And the judge says, sure, you're right. I'm, I'm a good guy. I'm a nice guy. You can go ahead and go free. I don't care what happens from here. We would look at that judge. There would be no, there would be no way that any court in all of America would allow him to practice uh, law any longer. And yet sometimes with God, we, we think that he just needs to uh, sit back and never punish sin because that's harsh or that's mean or that's not okay. And yet in human standards, we would never stand for that. That a human judge better put the, uh, put the ones who are deserving of punishment and they should be punished for what they've done. They should be punished for their crime. They should be punished, especially if they're going to go forward and continue. That needs to be stopped. And so the same is true as we look at God, because God is one of perfect, a God of purpose, a purpose, sorry, perfect justice. Perfect, perfect justice. He must judge sin. Now, specifically as we talk about Jericho, I want to go back and look at a little bit of context. The, bo- the book of Genesis, as uh, Abraham, God is making a covenant with Abraham, and he's saying that uh, he's going to be able to, uh, after being sent to Egypt, that his people would come back to the land that God had promised Abraham. And in Genesis 15, we see what God says about when would be the time for Abraham's people to return to the land that God had given him. Because he already told them that they're going to go to Egypt. Uh, he says, you're going to go to a foreign nation for 400 years, uh, and then they will be judged, and then you will go and you will go to the land, your people will go to the land that I have promised you. And in verse 16 of chapter 15 in the book of Genesis, it says this. And they shall come back here, talking about Canaan, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. The word Amorite is another name of one of the people groups that are living in Canaan. And no doubt some of the Amorites would be part of Jericho. And many times Amorites or Canaanites are used interchangeably. And what is told to Abraham is said, look, you can't, you won't be, your people won't go back into the land until their sin of the Amorites, the sin of the Canaanites will be complete. In other words, they will be so bad that there's no hope for them anymore. And then you will be able to go in and take the land. In Leviticus 18, we see, uh, and I'm actually not going to read all of this, but I want you to write this down. In Leviticus 18, uh, 2 through 30, pretty much the whole chapter. Leviticus 18, what Leviticus 18 does is it tells Israel, it says, Israel, don't be like the Egyptians and don't be like the Canaanites of the land that you're taking. And Leviticus says, don't be like the Canaanites and then lists a whole list of all the sins that the Canaanites practiced. And there's a lot there, and a lot of it is even, uh, it's just, it's a lot to read, and it's a lot of talking, but I narrowed it down, if you want to look at that chapter, to several different sins that are specifically mentioned about the Canaanites. What is it that they were doing? What is it that the sin was happening inside their walls? Well, the first thing you see a lot of in Leviticus 18 is incest. They're apparently, in Canaanite uh, culture, it's normal for people to be having sex with their sisters, brothers, cousins, all sorts of weird things were going on. Uh, As that passage talks about, they were uncovering the nakedness of people that they never should do that with. Their mothers, it, it gets really weird. There is a lot of sexual incest sin that is happening in the land of Canaan. 
That is, that has been attested to, and even in looking at archaeology, we see that these ancient cultures were so brutal and so sexual that it really is just overwhelming to how bad it was. We see that there's practices of adultery and fornication happening, more sexual immorality, where people are purposely going outside of their marriage to, to, to indulge sexually. We see that happening in Canaan. One of the biggest things that is mentioned in uh, Leviticus 18 after all of that is that there was child sacrifice being taken place in the land of Canaan, in Jericho, in all of the cities that would be the Canaanites, the Amorites, that there was child sacrifice to the God called Molech. They were taking their children and they were sacrificing them to a God to appease him. That's what they were doing. They were giving their very own children and sacrificing them before this false god. It's also mentioned in Leviticus 18 about homosexuality, that people are giving up what is the natural course of sexuality and they are moving into homosexuality. And then not only that, but also bestiality. They're starting to actually have sexual relationships with animals. That is what is happening. That is just a piece. That is just an overview of all that Leviticus 18 says was happening in the land of Canaan. If God did not punish this sin, if he does not come and punish and show his justice against this sin, then God is not a good God. He needs to address this. And he uses Israel as his, his, as his agent of judgment. God displays his justice because he needs to judge sin. A couple other thoughts as we think about this verse, about all the people in in Jericho being destroyed, men, women, children, uh, old people, uh, oxen, sheep, donkeys, everything being destroyed. A lot of people will point to this verse and say, see, God is a tyrant. God is vicious. God is a monster. As we've already seen, God must judge sin, and that's what he's doing through the people of Israel. But the other piece of this that we need to understand about God is there are things that we will never understand about him. We will not understand why he does what he does. We will not understand uh, his timing many times. But we need to have faith that God is sovereign over all and that he always does what is just and what is right. He always does what is just and what is right. Deuteronomy chapter 32 Even before all this happens in Jericho, we're reminded in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 4, of who God is. Deuteronomy 32, verse 4. The rock, who is referring to God, the rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. Deuteronomy 32 tells us that God is just. He is perfect. His justice is perfect. And he is without iniquity. We cannot blame God and say that somehow he is committing sin here because he has devoted all of these people to destruction. God is their creator. He can also be their judge. And he should be their judge as we look at the sin. But it's still hard as we think, why did God have, why didn't he spare animals? Why didn't he spare children? Why didn't he spare some of the women? They weren't even fighting people. Why would he take them out as well? God is always just and always right. There was sin that needed to be punished. Psalm 145 is another passage I want to look at as we think about the idea that God always does what is just. God always does what is right, even when we don't understand it. Psalm 145. 
Psalm 145. Psalm 145, verses 17 through 20, as we listen to who God is again. Psalm 145, 17 through 20. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. The Lord is near to all those who call on him, but to all, uh, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all those who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. You see, because God is righteous, he gives mercy to some and destroys the wicked. And we'll look at in just a moment, as we've looked back in Joshua, we see that even in God's justice, even in God's judgment, even in the wrath that he pours down on on the sin that has enslaved these people, even as he does that, he does offer mercy. We can't miss that. We'll see it in the person of Rahab, and we'll talk about that in just a moment. But one other thought to think about. As we think about God, we think about what he does. And it's so tempting for us to judge sometimes what God would do as we look at him in scripture and say, that doesn't seem like a good God. That doesn't seem like something God should do. I want to read to you from the book of Romans. Book of Romans, chapter 9. This is something that all of us, I think, need to come to grips with when we think about God. God is going to do what God is going to do. He has the right to do whatever he wants to do. He is the creator. He is the God. And we cannot question him in his morality. We cannot question his moral code. Romans 9. Verse 14. We could read the whole chapter, but we'll start in verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it depends not on our human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? Who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? For if God, desiring to show his wrath to make known his power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory. This passage is very clear that God is a God of mercy. God is also a God of justice. God is a God of mercy and yet God is a God that will hold people accountable for their sin and that he is sovereign over all of that. And we look at this, and the, and the Bible says very clearly, who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Who are we to question God's morality? Who are we to question who God has shown mercy to and who God has chosen to, to uh, pour his wrath on because of sin? We have no right to question God. God is God, we are not. And we cannot put him in our box of our mind. And so we trust him, that he is always doing what is right, and we don't question that. And we look back and we see that sin must be judged. And as a good judge, as a just judge, as a righteous judge, God has to punish sin. 
Now for us today, as we think about this idea of the punishment of God, God still pours his wrath. More specifically, poured his wrath down on Jesus Christ. His very own son that he sent to the world to become a human. On the cross when he died, God poured his wrath down on Jesus for us. If we will come in faith and trust in Jesus and embrace him and accept the gift that he has given us of being the one who absorbed the wrath of God on our behalf so that we don't have to be destroyed. Because there is destruction coming for those who don't know Jesus. There is a true destruction that has to happen because God is a good, just, righteous judge and therefore sin must be punished. And it's either going to be punished as we trust in Jesus that he took our punishment or it will be punished in hell for those who don't accept the gift of Jesus who died for us. He died as our propitiation. He took the wrath. He satisfies the wrath of God on our behalf if we will come to him and ask him for forgiveness. This is the truth that we have from scripture. So I don't say all this to say that God is going to punish sin to somehow scare us all into thinking that, well, I better not sin or I might be uh, smited today, if that's a word, smote, I don't know. But whatever it is, That's not the point. The point is that God must judge sin and he judged sin by pouring his wrath on Jesus and that's how we can come to Jesus and be, and we can have eternal life and we can have hope and all of the things that God has given us through Jesus we can embrace and we don't have to be afraid of his wrath. We don't have to be waiting for him to come down and destroy us because he has already put his wrath on Jesus. Jesus died for us on the cross and his sacrifice, if we will accept that on our behalf and repent of our sins and live for Jesus, then that wrath will not be on us and God has taken that for us. But if we don't accept that, the truth of scripture is is clear, that the wicked will be destroyed. Those who don't have their sin dealt with in the way through Jesus Christ will be destroyed. If you want to do some more reading on the idea of why we have no right to judge God's morality, Isaiah 45, uh, Isaiah 55, and Job, the whole last four chapters of Job, and all of these talk about how God is a God who does things that we might not understand, but we need to trust him anyway. The next thing I want to point out, though, as we go back to Joshua Yes, there was complete destruction and God judged sin in a radical and complete and comprehensive way. He destroyed everything. He had them destroy everything to to judge the sin that had been there for over 400 years that had been building up and building up and building up and God couldn't take it anymore. Just as though just as he sent the flood, just as he took out Sodom and Gomorrah for their sin, the same thing now is true of Jericho. The only difference is in those situations God used nature and in this situation God used his people. But in that, in understanding that, we also see this beautiful thing in chapter 6, verses 22 through 25. But to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, Go into the prostitute's house and bring out from her, uh, from there the woman who, and all who belonged to her as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and her mother and her brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. And they burned the city with fire, everything in it, only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab the prostitute in her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. 
This goes back to a prior sermon that we've looked at when we looked at what Rahab did. When the spies come to Jericho and, and she hides them because she believes. We looked at the idea, remember, that it's faith. That she was moved by the fear of God and she knew who God was and that led her to action. That she showed her faith by protecting the spies. That she trusted in God and knew that God was going to give the city into the hands of the Israelites and therefore put her hands in God's hands and told the people, put herself in God's hands and told the people, uh, told the Israelites, please remember me when you come and take the land. And they are, they promise that because of her faithfulness that they will protect her and now we see it happen. Even in God's righteous justice and wrath that had to be dealt with sin, that had to deal with sin, even in the midst of all of that, God shows mercy to Rahab and her family. Because of why? Because of faith. And so here's the thing. Even though sin is to be punished, God gives mercy. If you remember Psalm 145, it talks about before it says the wicked will be destroyed that we read just a few minutes ago. Psalm 145 says that he will have mercy to those who love him. Same thing in Romans chapter 9 that we just read, verses 14 through 23. Yes, he talked about the fact that some people are hardened and some people will be objects of wrath, but he says other people will be objects of mercy and compassion. This is a beautiful reminder that God is a God not only of wrath, because that is just as much of a, a, of a, a pitfall as it is to believe that he is all just nice and, and kind and never does anything to punish sin. He's not just the God who is up there ready to squish people whenever they do something wrong. He is a God of mercy and love, and in that justice, even he's just towards sin, he is righteous towards sin, and yet he gives mercy and grace to those who call upon him. The whole of Scripture is clear of that. Even the worst of sinners who come to Jesus, and they ask him for forgiveness, and they ask and they believe and they have faith, that is how we have mercy. Rahab had mercy because of her faith, because God showed her who he was and allowed her to have faith in him, and he did that, and she had faith, and now she is spared. You see, God does show mercy, and as I just talked about, all people deserve hell. We all deserve punishment forever for our sin, and yet God showed mercy to those who will come to him and ask for forgiveness through the death of Jesus Christ. And when we come and ask for forgiveness, he gives mercy because he is a God of mercy, a God of perfect justice and a God of perfect mercy. We can't understand this because a human can't be both. He is a God that hates sin yet loves people. And how all that works out, it it all goes together because he is the holy, mighty, righteous God. And so he's receiving glory as he punishes sin and he's receiving glory as he gives mercy to others. And that gets on to our last point here in point three. God made the victory a public spectacle. God made the victory a public spectacle. Joshua laid an oath on them in verse 26. Joshua laid an oath on them at that time, saying, Cursed before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds this city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundation, and at the cost of his youngest son shall he set up its gates. So the Lord is with Joshua, and his fame was was in all the land. A couple things happen here. 
God makes this victory a public spectacle, first of all, by Joshua saying, nobody should ever build this city again. Now remember what had just happened to the city. It had been completely destroyed. After they went through and killed everything and and wiped out everything, and then afterwards they burned the city. It was total ruin. And Joshua says, don't rebuild this city. This city needs to not be rebuilt. Now why would he say that? Well, partially because of the sin that this city, city stood for, But I believe as we look at the context of what's happening here, it's pretty clear that this burned out pile of rubble and ruins was to be a reminder of God's glory. It was to be a reminder that God destroyed sin, that God had justice against sin, and even that God had mercy through saving Rahab and her family. It's a reminder of who God is. It'll be a point that people can look and say, God is a God who did this. And so no man should rebuild the city. And then in verse 37, 27, so the Lord was with Joshua and his fame was in all the land. Joshua becomes famous. Joshua fought the battle of Jericho. Joshua becomes famous, but why is he famous? Not because he was a mighty warrior, not because he made a great battle plan, not because he figured out how to make the walls fall. The reason Joshua was famous was because the Lord was with Joshua. God was with him through this whole battle. It's fitting that the last verse of this chapter is that the Lord was with Joshua and his fame was within all the land. Through this victory, God glorified himself through Joshua in all the land. All the land. Not just Israel but all the cities that would have heard of this victory would have known that God was with Joshua and the fame would spread. And so God wanted this to be a public spectacle, and indeed it was. So as we we conclude as our thoughts about the battle of Jericho, uh, there's so many things we could have drawn out. There's even more, you know, we could have dove into the archaeology and all those different things. But there's a reason this is in Scripture. And it's not just for us to try to figure out how it happened but it's for us to see what God had done. That God gave victory. And so a couple questions for us as we close. Are you living by faith in Jesus? Joshua and the Israelites, they had complete faith in God. They had complete faith in God and they trusted him. And as we've talked about throughout this sermon, Jesus took the punishment for your sin and for mine. God poured his wrath down on Jesus on the cross so that we didn't have to experience eternal damnation and punishment in hell. He did that because he's a merciful God, a God of grace and a God of love, and also a God of justice, and that's why Jesus had to come. And Jesus was sent to this earth to live a perfect life, to die on the cross, to rise again, to say, I am God himself and I am more powerful than sin and death. Come to me and you can have eternal life and you can have eternal hope. That is what God says. That is what Jesus says. So if you will turn to Jesus, turn away from your sin, turn towards him in faith, and believe and trust that Jesus is the one who took God's wrath for you, then you can have eternal life and you can experience God's mercy in a way that you have never experienced it before. But it all starts with having faith, believing in Jesus, who he is, what he did, and who he continues to be. A couple other questions. First of all, are we willing to obey God even when it doesn't make sense. Israel was willing to obey God even though the battle plan seemed crazy. To walk around a city and just expect the walls to fall. And yet that's what Joshua and Israel did. 
Are you willing to obey God? Whatever he is asking you to obey him in right now, even if for whatever reason you feel it doesn't make sense, you can come up with all the excuses in the world why you shouldn't follow what he says. Do it anyway. In faith, obey God, even if it doesn't make sense to you, because he knows better than you do. And finally, do we trust in both the justice and the mercy of God? Do we see God for who he truly is, or do we see God for who we want him to be? Do we see him as the kind, grandfatherly figure floating on the clouds that is just going to shower us with blessings and and love and all the time? Do we see him as a God who's just looking to squish whoever he can because he's angry with us? Or do we see God that is a, a God that is perfect in righteousness, perfect in justice, perfect in wrath, perfect in love, perfect in holiness, perfect in mercy? He is all of those things. We can't just isolate God to be a certain type or a certain aspect of him to be the one that we worship. We need to worship God for all of his attributes. The fact that he does judge sin is something we can worship God for. The fact that he has mercy even despite sin is something we can worship God for. Every part of who God is is something we can worship him because he is perfect in all his ways. And so do we truly trust in both his justice and his mercy? Those are the questions that we ask as we leave this sermon. Let's close in prayer as the worship team comes up. Lord, I pray that you'd remind us of the battle of Jericho, that you'd remind us of Joshua and his faith, the faith of the Israelites as they went forward. God, I pray that you would remind us that you are the God who is at work and that you are the God that we can have faith in, that you are a sovereign God of justice. You are a sovereign God of mercy. And that, Lord, we would just throw ourselves into your hands, into your arms, and just submit to your justice, submit to your mercy, submit to all who you are. God, I pray that we would do that this morning. I pray that if there's anyone here that has not experienced your mercy, your grace, through accepting Jesus as their Savior, that today would be the day. And I pray for the rest of us today that, Lord, you would help us to obey you even when it doesn't make sense. And to trust that you are a God of justice, a God of mercy, and the perfect God who we can follow and we, we shouldn't question, Lord, because you, know you, you, you know what is best. And Lord, help us to trust you in that at all times. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.